morning, church. Hey, I want to call your attention to some resources on our website. Uh, in fact, if you give me a lower third, uh, those of you who are new here, we begin every year with a fast. And uh, over the years, we've realized that there are many people who don't know what fasting is. They don't know what the Bible talks about as it relates to fasting, and they're not even sure how to begin a fast. And so on January 1 through January 7, we're going to do a a fast, and we've put all kinds of resources up on our website, but I want you to begin planning now uh, for that date. Uh, You you can't just say, I'm going to fast for seven days today. You, you, you need to plan and prepare for that both spiritually and physically. And, and so I want you to get ready even now as we make our way into the uh, holiday season. I want you to be ready for January 1st. And then we're going to break the fast together with a worship night on January the 7th. Okay. And so uh, go ahead and mark your calendar that evening. We'll do it at all the campuses on, on January uh, the 7th. And so before we dive into uh, the content today, I, I just want to say that we've spent all month long celebrating various ways that God has been moving both in us and through us through our all-in initiative. And and this morning, we want you to hear uh, from Tony uh, in Egypt to hear another reason why your generosity means so much. Watch this video if you would. Hi, Butter Creek. I have a lot of good news to share. But before I share the news, I want to say thank you, Butter Creek, because without Butter Creek, we will not be here. We have five branches. We serve in Jordan. We serve thousands and thousands every week, more than 8,000 to 10,000 weekly. We serve in Egypt and Jordan. This year, we serve 1,000 students, 100 met with and accept Christ. And we equip more than 700 student to be a leader with SLU. We have more than 90 men and women be recovered from drugs addiction and accept Christ and now in discipleship group. We reach thousands and thousands by digital church and by online program. We serve more than 300 underprivileged kids, more than 1,400 one-to-one session in counseling session. Today in Egypt, we serve in five cities. We serve in the street with people. We serve with unreached people. We serve with people that didn't belong to any church. And we serve in Jordan more than 300 families, all of them from refugees from Iraq, from Syria. So thank you, church. Thank you for giving, supporting, praying, and coming and visiting us. We want to say thank you. We appreciate by this partnership. We believe that we have a brother and sister in Petter Creek. God used them in our country. Praise the Lord. And and what he's talking about actually has a great deal of significance to what we're going to talk about today. But as a reminder, there's still time uh, for you to end strong in in this all-in journey in this year. And and the good news is, is we have been able to, in recent weeks, to connect the hands uh, of of two different partners, TC Egypt with, with the hands of Convoy of Hope in an attempt to get much needed resources out of Egypt and into Gaza uh, across the border. And my eye in this whole world event, the last month and a half, two months, has been about this highway that has been created between two countries that have been at odds with one another since Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 19 about there becoming a highway for the gospel 
to travel out of Egypt into the Holy Land, all the way up into uh, modern-day Syria. And so just know as you finish strong, uh, you're all in commitment, or you go over and above what you pledged, or you join us for the very first time this month and and giving to this all-in journey, just know you're a part of what God is doing, not just here in Tulsa, but in other parts uh, of the globe. And so church, let me just encourage you, let's finish this thing strong to the glory uh, of Jesus Christ. Now let's begin today with prayer. If you would, at your seat, just grab a knee. If you can't, just bow your heart before the Lord. And would you submit yourself uh, to the authority of the Word of God today? Would you submit yourself to the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, today? Would you tell the Holy Spirit that you need a fresh touch, that you want to see more of Him than you have ever seen before, that you want to know your Savior in a new way, in an intimate way, in a fresh way? Would you ask Him to let the Word of God jump off the pages today and change your life? Father, we submit to you. This is your church. We stand under your authority. I pray today you would not just anoint the preaching of your word, but you would anoint the hearing of your word, that you would do something in our midst today that can only be explained by the presence of God Almighty. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we all say... Amen. Now, we've been looking at these Old Testament uh, prophecies that speak to the birth of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And and as I've said a couple of times this month already, prophecy is very important to us as the church. And one reason is that the prophecies in the Old Testament actually weave a thread that verify uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. And if you were to count up all of the threads that run uh, through the prophecies of the Old Testament, you will find that Jesus has fulfilled 330 of them. And if you look at the evidence, there is no doubt about it. But even still in conversation, people will say to me, yeah, but come on, pastor, that's coincidence. And you just have to hear me. It is mathematically impossible to accidentally fulfill all the prophecies about the Messiah. In fact, mathematicians have tackled this and it is really, really, really interesting. Do you know that just to fulfill eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament, just to fulfill eight, not, not, not all of them, just eight of them, the, the odds are one in 100 quadrillion. Did, did you know that's a, a, a number? It's one followed by 18 zeros. That is a huge number. Now, let me just help you put that in perspective. There are 8 billion people on planet Earth, 8 billion. In order for the odds to work out one out of that number I just gave you, do do you know how many, just to fulfill eight of the prophecies, by the way, just eight of them, how many Earths you would need to get to one person who could fulfill just eight of these prophecies? What if you had 12 uh, planet Earths? What if you had 1,200 planet Earths? Not enough. You need 12.5 million planet Earths for the odds to work out to find one person who could fulfill just eight of these prophecies on accident or, or anyone other than Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not just stop at eight. He didn't stop at 80. He fulfilled over 300 of these Old Testament prophecies. And the prophecies of the Old Testament verify he is the Messiah. We can trust him and we can believe his promises. That's a great promise, isn't it, church? Now, hear me. I want you to uh, write this down, if you would, that the promises of God are greater than the problems you face in life. 
The promises of God are always greater than the promises you or the problems you will face in life. That's the thread that I want to run through this message uh, today. And I want you to know that any tragedy you have ever seen or or you are uh, seeing currently or will see in your life, God can turn that into triumph. And that's the message that kind of weaves itself through the last two of the five prophecies that we're going to talk about that Matthew pointed out in his Christmas story. And I want you to keep in mind that what Matthew is really doing here is he's trying to teach us how to read the Bible. That's what he's doing. And he wants us to see that Jesus is the storyline. He is the thread that runs through all of the scripture. Okay, so let's dig in today, Matthew chapter two, and we'll start in verse one. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Uh, we, We looked at that one last week, right? That he was born in Bethlehem. But look what he says. He was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now let's talk about uh, for a second, who is King Herod? He was sort of a self-appointed king of Judea of the Jews of the day. He was an outsider who had come in and risen to power and he was trying to get everyone to like him. So he would do all kinds of things. He would do these massive building projects and everyone would cheer, ah, yay. And then he would say, of course, all these building projects are gonna require a lot of money, so we have to raise the taxes. And everyone would go, boo. And then he would say, well, how, how about if I renovate the temple in Jerusalem? And they were all like, yay. And, and then he would say, I, I'm, but I'm also going to build pagan shrines for all the other pagan gods too. And they would all be boo. And, and sometimes he would just kill the people who would boo. That's the type of guy that Herod was. That's a perfect picture of someone who is trying to please everybody. And you know what? It didn't work. In fact, it made everybody hate him. And so he was very unpopular and it made him very, very, very upset. Now let's keep reading about this guy named King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the east, our eastern lands, arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Which, as you can imagine, made him even more angry. Why? Because he thought that he was the king of the Jews. So it would be like somebody showing up at your job, and you're the boss at your job, and they say, I would like to speak to the manager. And you say, well, that's me. What can I help you with? And they're like, no, no, I mean the real manager. It would tick you off, right? Especially if you're the kind of person that's always looking over your shoulder, wondering if someone else is going to take your job from you. That's where Herod's mind was. And he was constantly afraid. He was afraid that the Jews wouldn't like him and that the Romans would hate him, right? He was afraid that Rome would kick him out. He was afraid that the Israelites would rise up and uh, against him. He was even afraid of his own family. When you read history books, you realize he killed his wife's grandfather and both of his own sons just because he was afraid that they would take his power from him. So you got this guy who is very unpopular, who calls himself the king of the Jews. These wise men show up and say, we've seen the signs. We searched the scripture. Good news. God has appointed someone to be king. And Herod is like, finally. It's me, I'm finally gonna get the recognition I deserve. And the wise men are like, no, 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 no. It's not you, it's a baby. 
A baby has been born and we are here to anoint him as king. It made Herod really upset and it even disturbed, according to the scripture, the whole city. Why? Because they knew when Herod got upset, he would take it out on the whole city. They were scared that he would kill someone or some ones, right? Which he did, right? And that's the type of guy that Herod was. Now, now let's just stop for a second and think about this. Because over in Galatians, Paul tells us at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. Now think about that. Because if it was you and me, and we looked at that time, we probably would have picked another time to send the Messiah into the world, right? We we would have looked at all the political climate in Judea. We would have seen who was in charge, how cruel he is. And we would have thrown up a big stop sign, right? And said, wait a minute. Hold on, angels, don't go announcing anything yet. We're going to put a big pause on this whole plan for just a couple of years, right? But that's you and me. That's not God. God looked at the situation and said, now is the right time. He saw the turmoil. He saw the tragedy. And he said, this is the right time. Why? We're going to look at why when we look at each of these last two prophecies. But one of the reasons I think, and we covered this in our Hebrew series, is that Jesus was just like us. He was tempted in every way, just like us. And he also experienced life just like us. All the ups and all of the downs, every tragedy and triumph you've experienced in life, Jesus Christ was born into that. And he knows what you're going through. And he has a way out and a path to ultimate triumph. So let's go back to the Christmas story and pick it up in verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, you can read into this that Herod is trying to trick them. Oh, a a, a baby is the king of the Jews. Great news. In fact, go find him. And when you do find him, let me know because I really would like to meet him. But the wise men weren't called wise for for no reason, right? So look at verse 12. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. In other words, they knew what was really going on. God warned them not to get involved with this Herod guy, that he's up to no good. In fact, God also warned uh, Joseph about it. Look, Look at verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, get up, Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, what Matthew is doing, don't miss this, is he's lining up Jesus and Moses. That's what he's doing. With the idea that Jesus uh, went down to Egypt where Moses was. In fact, later in Matthew's story, when Jesus leaves Egypt, the language is almost identical to the language in another verse in Exodus. Let me, let me show you that, okay? And you, you can write this down. Matthew 2.20, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. Now, now watch this. This is Exodus 4.9. Return to Egypt for all those those who wanted to kill you have died. 
It's almost word for word. If you take the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, line it up against the Greek New Testament, here's what you see. In fact, I've tried to put these in color-coded words so that you can see the exact Greek words are, are present in both of these verses. It is almost letter for letter. The point is there is a direct parallel between Jesus and Moses, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the exile and the exodus. And Matthew knows this, so he starts weaving this thread so that the writers, you and I, will catch on. Now let's keep reading. Verse 14. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. They stayed there. Now watch this, okay, because I'm going to jump ahead. They're there. They stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And here we go. This is the prophecy, right? I called my son out of Egypt. This is the next prophecy about Jesus that Matthew is giving us. And here's what he's doing. He's reaching back into one of the minor prophets, Hosea. And he interprets a particular passage as a foretelling of Christmas. Let's look at it. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. Now let's take a look at this passage because what Matthew is doing is using a technique that I've taught you, taught you before called remez. And, and remez is when a rabbi would quote one part of the passage and the disciple would know the surrounding context of that passage and they would fill the gaps in. In other words, what the speaker is doing is giving the student one end of the thread and the student is taking that end of the thread and is pulling it. That's, that's what's happening in this. And in fact, you do this. You don't know that you do this, but you do it. We do it in English all the time. There are phrases that will stand on their own, but the rest of the phrase is just understood. You don't have to say the rest of the phrase, like when in Rome, right? You, you don't have to say do as Romans do. You just know when in Rome. We, we say that. We don't fill in the blank. Now, if you don't know the phrase, then it doesn't make any sense to you, right? We, we do the same thing. In fact, let me just do it with Christmas lyrics and, and you uh, fill in uh, the next line, if you would. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Not just a Merry Christmas, right? But a Happy New Year also. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the one I used to know, 2009, last time we had a white Christmas in Tulsa, right? How about this one? I'll be home for Christmas. What? What? It's not you can count on me. How many of you think it's you can count on me? Raise your hand like with, with authority if you think that's right. It's you can plan on me. None of the singers saying you can count on me. None of them. Google it. Because I was wrong just like you were wrong this week. Right? So, so when Matthew said, out of Egypt, I called my son, all of those who are reading it knew how to fill in the blank. They knew how to pull on the thread. And in their minds, they would go to Hosea 11.1, and then they would keep pulling the thread. Let, let's pull the thread with them into verse 2. But the more I called to him the further he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. Now, what they knew that isn't as obvious to us at first blush is that what Hosea is doing is talking about the Exodus. He is reading back into history Israel's greatest moment 
when God brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. And he's painting the picture of God as this heavenly father who is tenderly calling his child. But the problem is, is this heavenly father called his child into the promised land and they brought their idols with them. And here's the point. You you can escape the place of idols, but if you take your idols with you, you're still stuck in slavery to sin. And in the Bible, the interpretation of slavery is slavery to sin. And God is saying, I brought you out of all of that. Don't go back into that anymore. Because if they do, they will be exiled to another place of slavery. Even though he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, they remain slaves to sin. Now, what's the application? Just because you have been saved does not mean you're immune to sin. Just because you give your life to him does not mean that sin has let go of you. Listen, it can have a hold of you and God wants you to know how to let it go and to remove it from your life. And you may be in a situation today where you're walking through the consequences of your sin, but that does not mean God has abandoned you. He has bought freedom for you through his son, Jesus Christ. And he wants to see you walk in the freedom that he bought for you. And now in the Christmas story, Matthew is saying, here's the real answer, guys, to the slavery of sin. The real answer to the slavery of sin is in the coming of this baby. And what Matthew is doing is tying this thread of exile that runs through the whole Old Testament to the coming Messiah. Now, what does that thread look like? Well, it begins in Genesis with Adam and Eve when they are exiled out of the Garden of Eden. And then Cain was exiled from the presence of the Lord. Abraham and Sarah were exiled, right? Joseph was exiled to Egypt. Moses to the backside of the desert. Do you think it's a theme and a thread that runs through Scripture? Uh, uh, Naomi to Moab, Israel to Babylon and Assyria. And Matthew is pointing out Jesus to Egypt and eventually to death, hell, and a grave. And over and over again, there is the picture of exile and return, exile and return, exile and return. And that's the thread that runs through the Old Testament. And it's not just about geography. And it's not just about people moving from here to there, uh, from one nation to another nation, from one land to the next land. It's about being exiled by our own sins. And then God sends Jesus into exile and to return, to free us from that sin and return us to him, to his heavenly father in an intimate relationship. So when Matthew quotes Hosea's prophecy concerning Jesus, calling his son out of Egypt, what he wants us to know is that Jesus came to free us from the slavery of sin. Now watch this. Just as God led the Israelites out of Egypt when he established the old covenant, he's leading the Messiah out of Egypt when he establishes the new covenant. So let's go back to the Christmas story to see the next prophecy, Matthew chapter two, verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise man's report of the star's first appearance. Verse 17, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And here we go. 
a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Now, this is also reminiscent of the Exodus story, where Pharaoh kills all the young Hebrew boys, and then God rescues the nation uh, from Egypt through Moses. You remember that story? This is so reminiscent of this. And what Matthew is doing here, I think, is rewriting the Exodus story in reverse, where where the Jewish king kills the Hebrew boys and, and Jesus flees to Egypt. The whole point is the same point of what we looked at through the book of Hebrews. Jesus becomes greater than Moses. He's greater than Moses. By the way, in our one-year Bible recently, we're reading in Jude, uh, and, and I come across this verse in Jude. I, I hope you came across th- this verse in Jude. I've read it a hundred times, but only now noticed it, and it jumped off the pages that Satan and Michael, the archangel, are fighting over the body of Moses. Did you see that? They're fighting over the body of Moses. Now, why would they do that? The Bible doesn't tell us, but but I think it's because God wanted to hide Moses' body because he knew if we had his body, we would worship it. And God was saying, this story is not about Moses. It's about my son, Jesus. Now, what Pharaoh and Herod did here in killing of these baby boys was so, so, so cruel. But the question for us today is, why is Matthew including this? When the other authors didn't, Mark didn't, Luke didn't, John didn't, they didn't bring it up at all, in fact. But Matthew, listen, is building a prophetic Christmas story. And along with the Egypt exodus, he's pointing out another story, the exile. Jeremiah is the prophet, the Old Testament prophet that he brings up. And that's when the Israelites were taken uh, from Judea, remember, and were sent off to Babylon. The passage where it talks about Rachel's weeping is all about seeing the children of Israel ripped from their mother's arms and exiled into Babylon, being sent off into exile into Babylon. It was tragic. And what Matthew is doing is is, uh, relying on two different stories from Israel's past, the exodus and the exile, the freedom from slavery and the return to slavery. And the lesson learned in the first story is give up your slavery to sin. The lesson learned in the second story is from tragedy can come triumph. Uh, Again, let's look at the rest of Jeremiah through the lens of Ramez, okay? Let's go to uh, and pull on the thread with the pupils. In in Jeremiah 31, 15, this is what the Lord says. A cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter reaping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children are gone. Now keep pulling the thread. But now, this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer. I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. This is not part of the message. But the Holy Spirit is capturing my throat right at this moment to say to some of you, your children are coming back. They're coming back. And it appears that they are long gone and gone forever. They're coming back. 
you keep faith and you keep lifting up Jesus and they're going to come back. And look at what he says. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Now, what's the point of all this? Listen, Rachel was the Old Testament mother of the Israeli people. And here she is weeping for her lost children. But in the Old Testament, when she dies, don't miss this. She dies in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is also where Ruth has Obed, which is David's grandfather. And so if you understand the scripture and the bloodline, what you see here is when you read about the tears of Rachel, you're reminded these women were queen mothers. The babies within them are kings, but not the king. Mary would carry the king. Another little girl in the same town in Bethlehem would carry the king. And the point is this, a place of tragedy, unbelievable tragedy became a place of triumph years later. Let let, let me remind you where we started this morning. The promises of God are greater than the problems you're facing in life. And you're currently going through a tragedy. There's hope for you. This time of year, our emotions get amplified, don't they? We get happy and over happy, right? Over every little thing. But on the other end of the spectrum, right? Any sort of sadness seems magnified. We, We mourn the loss of family that we saw last Christmas. We get down about a divorce or a son or a daughter who won't talk to us. We we reflect on the past year and our minds bring up all the bad stuff and we sort of relive every tragedy from the whole year. Can I tell you today, there's hope in this time of year. There's great hope. Jesus came at a time that was full of tragedy. He was a helpless little baby. His parents had to flee Egypt like refugees. And they had to huddle and hide from a tyrannical king, right? And he knew about tragedy from the very beginning of his life. And he knows all about your tragedy. It's good news, church. And what he wants you to know is that there's triumph on the other side of your tragedy. Let's pray together. Father, today in this place, we thank you for the story, the story. And we thank you that all of history is his story. It's your story, the story of Jesus. And today I pray that the story of Jesus would intersect with men and women and boys and girls. And I pray, Father, for salvation to spring up in the lives of men and women and boys and girls all across our campuses today, even for those who are watching from other places. And I pray today, Father, that the message of Christmas would change our lives forever and ever and ever. We thank you for the prophecies that point to Jesus and verify he is who he said he was, your son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And today, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to lead you in a prayer helping you do just that. I'm going to say a prayer, and I'll pray it one phrase at a time so that you can repeat it after me. But if you want to trust Christ and give your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer and pray it to God in heaven. 
You're going to hear people praying all around you as an encouragement to you. And if that's you today, you want to trust Christ, would you just say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver. And the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. Thank you for saving me. I receive you and I receive salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. And together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for meeting with us today? Thank you.